Welcome to what's usually called Dialogues with Creators. On this episode, I'm just going to be speaking by myself, maybe not to myself, and it will be more like a monologue about creativity. I hope that you will benefit from it. I am calling this podcast my writing journey. I'm going to address how I write, give a lot of tips about writing, and talk about my books. As a child, I was bookish. So why not write? I remember very well that in elementary school, I wrote a novel about a horse, of course. This horse had an amazing life, and the novel, such as it was, was pretty derivative. This horse was the Forrest Gump of horses. Now, I know nothing about horses, but horses were very popular at that time. And I lived in Maryland, and so that uh, that's near the Chincoteague and the Assateague Islands. And of course, I read Misty of Chincoteague. I never did read Black Beauty, although the movie is interesting. To quote 1 Corinthians 13, I became a woman and I put away childish things. And I don't even have any horses in my stories. When I became an adult, my writing existed for many years in three forms. The first was plays because I worked in a theater department. These were usually of religious themes. One was about Adoniram Judson, who I still think was the coolest missionary uh, pioneer. And the biography to the Golden Shore is outstanding. Another was about a deaf family, a sign of love. Another was about the persecution of Christians behind the Iron Curtain. This was the 1980s, so that was going on then. The persecution has not ended, folks. It's just migrated to other places, and we're more aware of it in those other places. I also wrote a play about William Carey, and that was written for a traveling group and performed all over the country. Some of the others were performed in various places as well. What this playwriting career, such as it is, taught me is shown in the following. It was a desire to use storytelling for spiritual and gospel purposes. In my last 15 years, I have moved away from purely faith-based writing. You won't find much of it in my last four novels or the two coming out by January. The Christian worldview is still there. Hope, redemptive arc, ethical basis, but not overtly. Secondly, it shows my background in theater. This is good and bad. A play and a novel are really very different from a storytelling standpoint, much more than one would think. A play tends to start with expository elements to set the stage for the story and the action. A novel, unless you are Charles Dickens, has to grab the reader on the first two to three pages at the most. I figure it this way. In a play, the audience has already made the commitment to come to the theater, to buy a ticket, it down there, so they're willing to wait a little bit. A novel or a short story, they really haven't made a commitment yet. And really what it comes down to is attentional resources and how much money they're willing to commit to this. The second aspect of my background in theater is that I think I write pretty good dialogue. 
Let's camp on that subject for a while because it's a problem for a lot of writers. Dialogue is communication. It's interpersonal communication, and that's my first disciplinary area. According to The Pragmatics of Human Communication by Watzlawick, Beaven, and Jackson, which is sort of my touchstone, all human communication has two elements, the sharing of information and relationship. That's my guiding principle, as well as that dialogue drives the story. Dialogue should be show and not primarily tell. It'll be a little bit of tell, but mostly it should be show. We shouldn't use dialogue for info dumps, for exposition, at least not too much of it in fiction and not too much in a play, but sometimes that's all you have. So dialogue has a bigger role in the exposition. But the point is that dialogue is not just info. It has to be a point counterpoint. The two people could be in disagreement, controversy, contrast, conflict, addition or, uh, of ideas or something is going on. And it reveals character. This is sometimes difficult because your character has to sound like a real person. And real people don't always talk like you hear on Downton Abbey or some perfectly formed sentences. I don't know how to write without having some cussing and earthiness and good dialogue. Now, that's a whole other story about how far you want to go with that. If you only want to write about ministers and old ladies, maybe you're going to get away with no cussing. But if you have a criminal who doesn't cuss, well, good luck with that. Anyway, the dialogue should sound like real people and how they talk, which is usually disconnected, fragmented, sometimes untrue imperfect English and or maybe not, depending on the character. My tip here is before you can write dialogue, you have to listen to people talk and write it down. For example, colloquialisms, sentence structure, interesting things they say, and just generally the cadence of how people talk. The final aspect of my playwriting side of my life is that I appreciate performance. I can be a little theatrical when it's needed. I'll give you an example is reading your own work. Many writers I've heard read just are horrible. They have this droning, flat, non-inflected pitch or one that goes up at the ends of sentences like a BBC announcer. I studied oral interpretation in theater. And so I read my work that way as if I didn't read it, write it myself. If people care enough to come to my readings, they deserve more than me sounding like I'm bored with it. To wrap up the playwriting phase, I'd like to say that in the last eight years, I've written two plays. Both are comedies. One was called Long Lost Relatives, and the other was the Faux Arc River Canning Salon and Bait Shop, which was performed in 2020, uh, directed by Miss Kim Carell. Long Lost Relatives was performed in 2014 and directed by Jackie Daniels. Again, these were both comedies and not in the least faith-based. I also have to give Jerry Dry some credit for writing some of the comedy in the Foark River, River Tanning Salon and Bait Shop. Long Lost Relatives was turned into a novel, so you can read it. It's Long Lost Family and Foark River Tanning Salon and Bait Shop. If that sounds interesting to you, I would love to send you a copy and maybe you could produce it at your little theater. So let me move on to 
the fiction writing side of my life. In 1986, I was able to take a fiction writing course from Ken Smith at University of Tennessee Chattanooga, which was part of my master's in English. It opened my eyes. In that story, I wrote three short stories, and since then, about 10 more. And I hope to publicly collect them and put them out for everyone. I have won some minor and local awards. Some of them are very Twilight Zone-ish. I consider Twilight Zone one of the greatest TV shows ever, and I watched it faithfully as a child. It gave me and a generation a certain aesthetic, I think, about short fiction. In all these years, those years from 1973 to 2003 or so, I was also, well, getting three degrees, raising a child, working full time, living, traveling, buying houses, etc. In the early 2000s, I started my first novel. The first draft was 150,000 words. In short, it stunk. Two colleagues were kind enough to read it and told me in so many words that it stunk. I did cut 50,000 words and found a publisher through a clearinghouse, and it was published in 2008. In 2012, I updated it and republished it and its two sequels. Those books are Traveling Through, Crossroad, and Legacy. They are a trilogy about a family that has an unusual beginning, middle, and end, and it's more faith-based but it's also very gritty and you can still get them. I plan to republish them as one novel totally in 2024. When I finished traveling through, I had an epiphany that I had rewritten Antigone. I taught Antigone for many years. I love it. And I realized that my main character was a woman who stands up to social and family influences for a cause and she pays the price. One thing I like to do in my long fiction is to have some reference to a famous literary work. For example, Tolstoy or Dickens, or I use a poem. In 2011, I participated in something called NaNoWriMo. If you don't know what NaNoWriMo means, it happens in November every year. They also do it in the summer. And you are supposed to write 50,000 words of a novel in one month, which means you have to write 1,600 to 2,000 words per day, which isn't always easy, especially in November. So I did that in November of 2011. In March of 2012, I got the worst flu ever and was laid up and quarantined. So I revisited that manuscript and decided that I was going to try this new thing called self-publishing on Amazon. That became the Unexpected Christmas Visitors. It remains my favorite child of my books. I don't know why. I don't know if it's the story. Maybe because it's about refugees and I have a place in my heart for them. Maybe because it was my first self-published one. And I learned a lot from doing that, maybe because it was my NaNoWriMo. I don't know. That same year, 2012, and I don't recommend anybody do this, I went back to graduate school to finish my doctorate at the age of 56. Again, I'm glad I did it, but I don't recommend it. I did finish it in three years. I also went through my mother's cancer 
her hospice uh, stay and her passing. In 2015, I graduated from UGA, and I also that year published Bringing Abundance Back, which to this point I consider my best and most literary novel. I call it, to try to sell it, my fried green tomato novel or my southern chiclet novel. It really isn't, but it's, I do that in order to get some sense of connection with the, the possible readers. It's the story of a woman who has lived in a town all of her life, a city in the South that has seen better days. The textile mills are going away. And this is in the 90s. And she decides that she's going to run a festival. And she gets to be the leader of this. And then in the process, she finds out all about what really happened in her family, which isn't so great. (laughs) So that was my fifth novel. In 2017, I turned Long Lost Relatives into a mystery novel and started the Long Lost series. In that series, Scott Wallace, who is a newspaper editor in a small town in Georgia, tells the stories of crimes that take place in Pierce's Crossing, Georgia, and he sometimes helps with solving them. In 2019, I published my most underrated and underread novel, Long Lost Promise. And I'm sorry about that because I think it's a great story. It's about a young woman of Hispanic background who was found dead on her parents' property. What happened? That story, finding out what happened. I hope by the end of the year, you have long lost justice out sooner than that, actually. And it is a story about a hate crime that was never solved in that time. So there are three stories so far in the Long Lost series. There may be a few more after this one. In 2023, Barley Land started Colorful Crow Publishing, and she took me on with Sudden Future. I can't say enough good about Carly. Sudden Future is number eight. She will be publishing my next one, which is tentatively called Lying In, and it is my magnum opus sometime this year as well. I will probably self-publish Long Lost Justice. So that makes 10 novels in about 15 years. Yes, also a textbook, several short stories, a dissertation, and four Bible studies, plus several blog posts per week on three venues, academic writing articles, and articles for venues whenever I'm asked. So yeah, I'm a writer. I'm not sparse about it. People ask me how I do it. First of all, I don't have any small children right now in my life. Secondly, I watch minimal TV and movies and pop culture. When I do listen to blogs or do a lot of those kinds of things, not blogs, when I do listen to podcasts, it's when I'm walking or driving. I do not socialize a great deal. And I have a flexible job where I still work 40 hours a week, but not throughout the whole year. And I have some ability to schedule my own time. I really think that my output is also due that I've trained myself to get in the flow of writing. I start the day by journaling, first about my daily achievements and, and family issues and feelings, and I use it for reflection purposes, and then to study a scripture passage. And I keep writing all day. It's not unusual for me to write 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 words a day. Now, I didn't say they were good words. I'm just saying they were words. They're all in the dictionary. 
I recently read one of those things that gets said about writing that is questionable. And that was that a novelist has to write one million words of fiction to really write their first novel. I'm, I've surpassed that quite a bit, but I don't think I agree with it. Personally, I'm too old for that nonsense. <laughs> Quality is not just because you've written a million words, but I do agree that you're not going to come out with a great novel the first time you sit down and try to write one. You need to fail. You need to get lots of input. You need to try lots of things. I like to think of my self-published novels as experiments. The first one is an experiment in tense. I used present tense. A lot of writers do that. I don't particularly care for it. It doesn't seem authentic to me, but I did that in the first one. Another one was an experiment in first person, which I don't always use. I do use it for the long lost series. That being the case, I'd like to talk about a few other myths or ideas that uh, people say about writing and either debunk them or agree with them or talk about them, add to them. One is fiction is the lie that tells the truth. I have two articles on my website about that. I don't think that that's true. (laughs) As Tony Grooms wrote recently, if it's a lie, it's a lie that the reader enters into intentionally, knowing that it is one, that it's a story, not a lie that's being told to aggrandize someone or get away with something. Another one I heard recently is start your novel, write it, and then throw out first three chapters because that's where the real story starts. I am cheap with my time and resources. I don't want to throw away very much of what I write. Sometimes it's necessary, but not always. So I'll find a purpose for those other three chapters. It is true that sometimes if you're just spinning your wheels in the first three chapters and trying to set up uh, exposition, set up a situation, you might be wasting time. So uh, as I often say, start with the snake, get the attention right off the bat. So it's not that you're throwing it away. You're probably just going to put it someplace else. The third and probably dumbest (laughs) advice is write what you know. Two big problems with this. Writing reveals what you know. I am a big believer that as you get into the zone and write and become comfortable with the process, you will tap into your sub and unconscious mind and things will come out that you aren't consciously aware of. Now, don't worry. I am not into anything new agey. And that sounds a little new agey to people, but that's not what it is. I'm probably one of the least new agey people you'll ever meet. But I do believe that our brains have so many connections in them that we're just not consciously aware of when we sit down to write and that the process itself will reveal what's there to us. We may not know it consciously, but we will find it in our subconscious and unconscious. So I really just getting comfortable with writing and whether it's typing or handwriting, I I don't know that it matters. As far as training yourself to get into this flow, it comes from quiet, isolation, study, spiritual discipline, those kinds of things. 
I also think it comes from prayer. We have to turn off all the incoming messages. Psalm 106 talks about longings and our longings are deep. Do we even know what they are? They aren't wants. Right now, I want something to eat. My stomach is hungry. These are on the surface. Longings aren't goals either. Longings are about deeper purposes. If you want to write about those, you have to set the conditions for it and be ready to listen. Another problem with the writing what you know is that you have to do research. Unless you are a defense lawyer and all you're really going to write about is your cases or cases you've run into, you need to research. And that means books, interviews with people really doing the work, the internet, and not just what you saw on a TV show. That's called derivative and that's not real life. Related to that is a discussion that I was uh, listening to at a writer's conference in the spring where one speaker asserted that white writers can't really write about minority characters. And while I think you have to be very careful when you do that, I don't really know how you avoid it. You can avoid the stereotypes, especially in speech, but I would think that writing where everybody is your race, your ethnicity, etc., is going to be pretty boring. Interestingly, Tony Grooms, whom I earlier quoted, he says that's uh, not a reasonable standard, and he's an African-American writer. I'll take his word for it. Black writers have to write white characters, so it seems like the rule would apply to them as well. What you do want to do, and it, when I say this, I please don't um, be offended. You want to be sure you don't have the magical Negro character. And we see these in movies sometimes where the African-American character is just there to save the, the dumb white person. But he or she has no life agency, personality, wants, etc. They're just there to fix things for the white person. That is so offensive. That's not what you want to write. The same way you don't want to have a white savior character who is coming in to fix it for the minorities. It's very important that your characters, if they're going to be full rounded characters, that they have agency and intentionality and choice and those kinds of things. So I've tried to share my story up to now and some of the primary tips I use. I'd like to add a few more. I have 10 or 11 and go through these. If you want to write seriously, be willing, first of all, to not be too obsessed with money (laughs) because it may not happen. In fact, it's one in a million that is going to happen. Everybody wants to point to good old J.K. Rowling, bless her heart, but there are very few writers who make a living nowadays who don't do something else. The second is that you need to understand the industry. That takes a lot of time, just like you have to understand marketing. Nowadays, even if you are what's called a mid-level writer, you have a publishing company, you've had some success, you still have to do your own marketing at some level. And so you have to understand what's involved in that. I confess 
I'm not particularly good at it, but I'm working on it, at least in the regard of, hey, I write books. For many years, I've barely mentioned it, as if I were ashamed of it, which is really odd to go to all that trouble and not let people know I did that. I can't imagine somebody practicing an instrument and never playing in public. There are lots of sources now to help you with marketing. And of course, if you have a publisher, that publisher will help you as well. But many sources say that if you want to have any success as a writer, you have to spend over 25% of your time in marketing. And that doesn't mean on social media per se. It just means speaking at groups, um, making appointments to speak to groups. I find that the best way for me to sell books and get to know my readers. The fourth thing is that you need to sacrifice time and fifth, work hard. Writing, serious writing, is miserably hard work. Next, I would say that you need to have mentors, a group or beta readers or some people like that because I've seen books that get published by people who haven't had others read them. They're sad. Let's just put it that way. You need them to be seen by lots and lots of eyeballs and lots and lots of eyeballs of smart people, people who know language, people who know the genre you're writing, people who seriously read, people who can look at a sentence and see that there's something wrong with it. This gets into the whole idea of writing. If you don't know what active voice is, you got a problem. If you don't know what past perfect tense is or progressive tense is, you got a problem. You need to get to understand these terms so that you know what to avoid or or when to use them uh, specifically and correctly. Good readers can help you with that. Number seven, be ready to fail a lot and get get criticized. I recently heard uh, some gentlemen in a group say, The people in our group have to have some bark on them. They have to be willing to take the criticism and use it. Doesn't mean you have to agree with it. Doesn't mean you have to change everything because one person says to. But if other people don't understand what you're doing, don't understand your reading. And I always ask in my group, and I have a great group that I work with. What's your overall purpose here? I'm not really that concerned with doing line edits until I know what you're trying to do with the piece of writing. You want it published. Where? Why? What's your long term? Is this a short story? Is this a novel? Do you know the genre? A lot of questions you have to think about. Number eight, I would say read the best and do your research. If you are wanting to be um, a mystery writer, you need to read different types of mystery writers, not just Agatha, although I love Agatha. Um, need to see how it's done. You need to see how the structure of a mystery. You need to make sure that the place where you put the mystery is a real place and you're not just assuming that that's the way it is in a certain location. Next, be audience centered. You're not writing for yourself. I mean, maybe you are, but you're not supposed to be. You want people to read it and you want them to. Like it, benefit from it, keep reading, whatever 
float your boat on that one, but you, you're writing for others, not for yourself. Next, be in it for the long haul because it's going to take you a long time. If you think you're going to write something in a couple of months, uh, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Finally, I have one last thing that occurred to me after I prepared this uh, talk. And I've had a lot of people ask me if I'm a pantser or a planner. And that means, do I write by the seat of my pants or do I plan out an outline? And I realize that that's a common dichotomy. But to be honest, I don't know how you can do one or the other. I don't know how you can't have a plan. But I also don't know how you can't just start writing, let your subconscious take over and be a pantser. See to your pants. I think that certain parts of the book need both. A book that's purely pantser is going to need a lot of revision. A book that's purely planned is probably going to have a lack of inspiration in there somewhere. Obviously, there's a lot more things we could say here. Thank you for listening. My books are available from Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Colorful Crow. I like to call Amazon and Barnes and Noble, the usual suspects. And you can get them from me. I have copies of them. And you'll probably find copies at McKay's. <laughs> Somebody has sold them. Uh, Crazy Lady Bookstore in Ackworth. I may have gotten that name wrong. And uh, Marietta Book Exchange in Marietta, among other places. Thank you for listening. This will be the last podcast of this season. We'll be back probably in late August with a new set of them, uh, maybe every two weeks. And uh, I hope you'll be listening. Please go back and listen to some of the previous ones. I've spoken to some great, fascinating people over the last year and a half. Thanks a bunch. Bye-bye. <laughs>